If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Millie Cawthorn, and for today's podcast, I spoke to the cultural historian Karen Harvey about one of history's most bizarre hoaxes. In 1726, a poor working woman from Surrey caused a media sensation when she appeared to give birth to rabbits. Karen is the author of a new book on the case, The Imposterous Rabbit Breeder, Mary Toft and 18th Century England. So I headed to Yorkshire to hear more from Karen about what this so-called rabbit breeder hoax can tell us about gender, class, society and scandal in the 18th century. So your new book delves into the story of the imposterous rabbit breeder, Mary Toft, which was a case that captured the imagination of, of 18th century society. To start us off, Can you just set the scene and outline what this bizarre hoax involved? Well, I suppose the place to start is a woman who is um, poor. Um, She is struggling to make ends meet. Um, And she's in a small town in Surrey, Godalming, where there is a tremendous amount of unrest and social tension. So the hoax really happens in that context. Um, What really happens is one of the great conundrums. So Mary Toft claimed to have given birth to rabbits. um, And several people supported this claim for a few weeks. 
It turns out, of course, that she didn't quite give birth to rabbits because, and this is the spoiler alert, women can't gestate rabbits, of course, but she didn't actually gestate and give birth to rabbits. The trigger for the whole affair, according to Mary Toft, was her working as an agricultural day labourer in a field on the outskirts of Godalming, seeing a couple of rabbits and deciding that she wanted to catch one of them. So she chased the rabbit, failed to catch it, and then the um, the idea of that rabbit just wouldn't leave her head. She couldn't stop thinking about it, she said. She was already pregnant at this time, and um, a short while after seeing the rabbit, um, she reports experiencing what was clearly a miscarriage. The the miscarriage um, went on for some weeks, um, and when that was concluded, she then started to pass these strange animal parts. And what do we know was really happening? Ah, what was really happening? Um, Well, when the hoax is revealed, what's clearly been happening is that someone or several people have been providing Toft and her family with animals, with rabbits. Um, Several witnesses say that they've been asked by the Toft family to give them rabbits. Um, One reports that he provided them with live rabbits. And it's clear that those animals are uh, killed, skinned, and dissected. And then they're used in the hoax. So that's what's really happening. But that doesn't... um, That isn't revealed until um, somebody in London who's been working at the establishment where Mary Toft has has been kept by the doctors, that that somebody confesses, actually, that he's been asked to provide rabbits. And it's at that point um, in early December that the hoax just falls apart. I think a a lot of people will have just heard that and gone, I'm sorry, what? Because on the face of it, this seems like a an incredibly exceptional, bizarre case. But in your book, you're arguing that we can look at a strange case like this and it will tell us something about everyday life in 18th century society. How so? Well, I think there are many threads that we can pull that can tell us a great deal about um, early 18th century society. The, The reason that I undertook this study in the first place was to train the light on Mary Toft herself. So I was really interested in the woman at the heart of the case. So historians have known about this case for quite a long time and some fantastic work has been done on the case. But I felt reading that work that actually, though they'd thought about the case from the perspective of the doctors, they'd thought about the case from the perspective of um, the sort of public sphere thinking about some of the satires that were produced around the case. What they hadn't really done was explore why a woman would become involved in something like this and what were the social and cultural conditions that made that possible. If you do that, I think you start to unpick some of the social, political, cultural conditions of the early 18th century things about um, social exclusion, um, about social unrest, around political tension, and also specifically around the the position of women in early 18th century society. 
I want to pick up your point on your point there about um, social tensions and political unrest because you suggest that we can't understand Mary Toff's hoax unless we understand the troubled community of Godalming that she came from. Mm. What was happening in the town at that time? So Godalming in 1726 is a divided town. Um, it's divided in a number of ways. There's a growing number of increasingly impoverished poor in Godalming. And there is a growing and it looks like increasingly affluent middling sort. And there are also some landed elite who have a great deal of power in the town as well. Um, the middling sort are governing the town very strictly through a number of uh, devices. And the poor are entirely excluded from those forms of of governance and from the wealth in the town. Godalming had been a relatively affluent place because of the buoyant clothing trade in which many of the poor were employed. But that trade is in decline. And that's really significant to understanding the case, actually, because Mary Toff's husband, Joshua, was an unskilled cloth worker. So he's sort of the lowest of the low, really, in in this trade. Um, And he will have been suffering um, because of the, the decline in the clothing trade. Put that together with Mary's economic position and and ability to earn. Mary, like many wives at this time, um, is engaged in paid employment in the market. She's actually um, an agricultural day labourer. And her wages, as far as we know um, from her own, um, the, the amounts that she gives, her wages are incredibly low. So this is a very poor, a very poor family. Something that I think people might be surprised to learn as well is the fact that in this context, the rabbit is not a neutral animal to be at the centre of this case. They had political connotations. Can you explain how? Yeah. Well, rabbits had been had long been a symbol of the wealthy, um, both because of the way that the the fur was used um, to, you know, to clothe the elite, um, but also the meat. Rabbits were the property of landowners. And it was only relatively recently that, you know, non-elite landowners had actually started commercially producing rabbits um, for a much wider market. Although that was still possible, um, many rabbits were still the property of the elite. Taking those rabbits was tantamount to theft, and that was a very serious crime and and was becoming um, increasingly harshly punished at this time. The reason rabbits were often a source of tension in in towns and environments like Godalming is because those landowners' rabbits would often escape their warrens. It's really hard to keep rabbits in one place. Um, You can build walls, you can build fences, but they will jump or eat eat their way out. Um, And so what happens is those rabbits escape. They escape onto common land. They eat the food that the commoners' animals might be grazing or that the commoners might be um, harvesting themselves uh, for their own use or to then sell on market. So rabbits are a bit of a pest if you don't own them. Therefore, there'd been a number of protests across England focusing on rabbits and on the way that they symbolised really landowners' 
rights um, and, you know, conversely, the complete lack of rights um, of certain members of the agricultural or the rural poor. Was that something that people connected to the Mary Toft case at the time? So that's a really good question. Unfortunately, I haven't found a single clear and explicit reading of the case in that way. But there's lots of circumstantial evidence that to me adds up to something that's significant, actually. A number of protests are taking place precisely in and around Godalming at this time. Um, There are protests around all kinds of animals, deer, fish, um, and all of those animals become in their own way symbols of elite privilege. And the poor um, or those who are excluded from established forms of governance and power holding um, use those animals as a focus for their grievances. This is a really important general context for the case, but it's actually very important specifically for Mary Toff's family because one of the things I discovered in researching the book is that Joshua Toft, Mary's husband, was involved in such a protest. In fact, in the summer that the rabbit hoax is taking shape, Joshua Toft engages in a mass trespass on a fish pond in Godalming. And he appears at the Guildford Quarter Sessions um, to answer for that infraction, for that misdemeanor. So that's a really significant historical detail here. Because whilst Joshua Toft is engaged in a clearly political protest with around 30 other men, his wife appears to be hatching um, a hoax which also involves an animal which has been the focus of political dispute I think we can quite reasonably I think connect those two and I think contemporaries did as you mentioned um earlier on you put Mary Toff the woman back in the center of the story Mm. and there are not that many sources I imagine that tell us about um ordinary working laboring women's lives at this time what does this case reveal about women's experiences and women's relationships. Mm. To understand Mary Toff's life, it is very difficult. We have very few documents at our disposal, but there are a few scattered descriptions that appear in the newspapers and also in the printed books, which purport to be descriptions um, given by her. They've been, of course, mediated by the men who then produced those printed sources. But there's something else that we have, and we have three confessions or statements that were given by her, taken down actually by a a doctor, James Douglas, um, and um, in the context of the um, criminal proceedings against Mary Toss. So these are legal documents, but they're the closest thing we get to an account of, of the hoax itself, the events leading up to it. And I think really interestingly, the social context in which those events happen. And I think they're really rich documents for unpicking um, a poor woman's life in the early 18th century. So we can learn all kinds of things. Mary Toff tells us that the work that she's involved in, um, she tells us who she's been accompanied 
with while she's working. She tells us the route she takes home while she's working in the, from working in the field. She tells us the women who come to the house um, when the first animal parts start to appear. She then tells us the steps that she and her mother-in-law go through in the early stages of the hoax, bringing in an array of of men um, to investigate the case. So we learn a great deal about her life. Um, I think the most striking thing for me that emerged from those statements of Mary Toft is the, uh, the, the way that she's accompanied by women at almost every step. She's working alongside women in groups in the field. That's very common for women at this time. Women would work in teams as agricultural day laborers. She's also surrounded by women as these strange deliveries start to appear. And again, that's entirely typical. Childbirth was still at this time um, a female-dominated process, women in childbed would be surrounded by other women, mainly and particularly by women who were very experienced in childbirth. So all of these things are entirely typical, even though at the heart of it is this extraordinary case of giving birth to rabbits, which was wholly atypical and and indeed unique. Many of the, um, the details Um, the incidental details that she gives us are entirely convincing um, and and reinforce for me the the fact that a lot of what she's telling um, James Douglas and her interrogators is actually truthful. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And so gender gives a really particular spin um, to those social tensions. So I think that's that's probably, for me, at the heart of the case. And it's, it's, it's those social relations that are so wonderfully exposed by this really extraordinary affair. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do we get any sense of the motivation behind the hoax from those confessions? Why the hoax happened is one of those questions that's, again, very difficult to answer. A really easy answer might be they did it for money. That's that's an explanation that several historians have entertained. The problem with that explanation is that no money appears to ever have changed hands And there are only one or two references to money. Mary Toft was allegedly offered a pension by the king um, and other bits of money from a couple of the doctors, 
although they were sort of dangled in front of her, it looks like, um, and, and she didn't actually receive any money. If that was the ambition of Mary Toft and the people around her, then the hoax was a complete failure um, because, as I say, she didn't, she didn't earn anything. I'm not wholly convinced by that because if I think they were after money, they'd have set up the hoax a little bit differently and they'd have started charging people for seeing, um, for, for coming to, to witness the, this affair. Um, I think why it happened um, is a difficult question to answer, but I think there are a couple of, of, of factors that we need to bear in mind. I think, first of all, that political context is terrifically important. And in the book, I, I talk about that as one explanation. The way that Mary Toff describes her um, chasing the rabbit because she's poor and can't afford them suggests to me that she's entirely conscious of the political punch that the hoax is going to have. So I think that's one important possible explanation and, and I think a likely one. I think the other one is something a bit murkier and a bit darker and that's about the women. So whether Mary Toft designed the hoax herself I think is a moot point. In the book I make an alternative case and the case is that actually she was persuaded, encouraged, perhaps even forced to go through with this rather difficult series of, of um, events by the women around her. The women are surrounding Mary Toff right from the start. And in her statements, she explains very clearly that they are the driving force, that she is intimidated by them. And she's intimidated in particular by her mother-in-law. And actually, in the final statement, when she's asked straight, who put you up to this? Mary Toft gives a really unequivocal answer. She said it was her mother-in-law. And I think it's there that we need to look for, for the motivation. Mary Toft is a very young uh, wife and mother of a toddler, James. Um, she looks as if she's living with her husband's family. Um, she's had one child who has sadly already passed away. She has um, an awful miscarriage as the hoax starts to, starts to um, develop. And I think there's something about her failing in her sort of reproductive duty for contemporaries that might be at the heart of, of, of this affair for the women around her. Whatever the motivation, I think the 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 real driving force for it comes not from Mary herself, but but from her mother-in-law and from the other um, older authoritative women that are around her at the time. M my take on on the case is that she has really barely any agency um, over what's happening to her. Um, part of that reading is very much thinking about. The, the reality and the materiality, the physical nature of the hoax. Um, without going into too much detail, Mary Toft does have animal parts inside her body and those animal parts have to come out of her body and the, that goes on for several weeks. This is a, a really painful, uncomfortable and very risky um, affair. 
it's it's difficult to to know for sure from the historical records, but I find it very hard to believe that a woman would do that willingly um, all by herself. Practically, it's extremely hard to do that all by yourself. Um, and 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 a lot of the evidence that we do have um, is clear that Mary Toft is is frightened, that she feels pressured at every turn. The the, the driving force, I think, uh, as as we've discussed around this case, is not Mary Toft herself. So. There was a lot of biological evidence that suggested this was a hoax. It wasn't that the doctors involved were entirely ignorant. Why do you think that they were so willing to overlook these signs and really wanted to invest in the idea that it could be true? Well, I think that's really important. So, but I would I would turn that around a bit. It's not it's not quite that the doctors were invested in the fact that it could be true. I think the doctors are really invested in cutting edge scientific method. You know, their reputation um, stands and falls on the way in which they investigate the case. These aren't quacks. These are, you know, very highly regarded very highly qualified doctors. They come from different places, different countries, but a very high proportion of them have a direct link to the royal household of King George I. Um, so, so these are, as I say, very, very reputable medical men. I think even though the the theory of the maternal imagination, the idea that women who are pregnant can see something or feel something and then their emotional response to that can actually imprint physically on the unborn child. Even though that theory still has credence in some medical quarters, I don't think the doctors are actually wedded to that idea. But I think what's going on is that they want to, they don't want to discount this apparent hoax until they can prove it and prove it beyond doubt. So the argument I make in the book is is not that the doctors are credulous and that they believe until the very last minute. I think actually in most cases, it's probably more like the reverse. I think actually they probably don't believe but they don't want to, they feel they can't make that argument until they've actually gone through a series of steps. So yes, they take various animal parts, they conduct experiments on them. There's only one doctor, I think, who um, believes that this really could be a hoax. I think the others are conducting experiments. They are sharing the information. They are asking their colleagues, their peers for their views. And it's it's only once the kind of mass of evidence has, has, has been brought together and a consensus has been reached, that they will start to actually say, look, we have used our scientific method. We have proved now that this actually is not a live monstrous birth happening in London in front of our eyes. This actually is a hoax, and it was a hoax from the beginning. See, that's interesting, because I think that has essentially turned what I was going to ask you next on its head, because I was going to say, we think of the 18th century as the time of the Enlightenment, but that suggests those ideas maybe weren't that secure. Whereas what you're saying is, really, that the emphasis was on being open-minded and testing everything scientifically. Yeah, I mean, I, 
I don't I don't want to suggest that monstrous births were ruled out of hand. That's certainly not the case. There is a live debate about that. And many respected uh, intellectuals um, and also sort of uh, amongst sort of the lay, um, the sort of non-expert population, people still do believe that what women think when they're pregnant will have an impact on the unborn. The question is, what's the impact? Exactly what is the impact? So, you know, they understand, they believe that women can think of a peach and, you know, a child could be born with a reddened birthmark, for example. But it's quite different from saying women can try and chase women can chase a rabbit, not get the rabbit, and the idea of that kind of lost rabbit can turn the fetus into a rabbit. But but those two are on a similar continuum. So there's a really live debate about, about this. So what we're seeing here absolutely is the Enlightenment, and that is an open-minded, as you say, debate often conducted in public about the natural world, what we know about the natural world and how we find out about the natural world. As you say, that debate was often conducted in public and there was an immense media sensation around Mary Toft. Why do you think there was such a public clamour and what does it tell us about the emergence of celebrity culture at the time? Was Mary Toft a celebrity? Well, she was a celebrity of a kind. Um... But actually, her celebrity as it develops um, is is really the focus for some really unsavoury, prurient and rather nasty press. Initially, the clamour around the case actually isn't really about Mary Toft at all. It's really about the rabbits. And it's about this apparently miraculous and extraordinary physical thing that's happened. As it turns out, that the case, you know, is exposed as a hoax. She becomes actually a a figure of of hate for most people who write about her. She was the poor woman, and now she becomes described as wicked. Um, What does it tell us about celebrity? I mean, it tells us that there's a tremendous curiosity for the extraordinary. Um, As you say, there are large groups of people who visit her in Guildford, in London, and then remarkably who go and visit her when she's in prison um, in the Westminster House of Correction. Um, So it it tells us that people are hungry for those kinds of stories, those sort of remarkable stories. But as I say, there's there's a really unpleasant tenor to some of that to some of that interest. I think as a woman, you know, she's the victim of blatant misogyny. Um, There are some dreadful discussions um, around the case, around her body. Um, I think the fact that she's poor um, is also tremendously significant. She's seen as a threat. both to the sort of general um, elite, to those reputable doctors who, you know, she appears to have made a mockery of, um, and and also to the royal household and perhaps the king himself. It's widely known that the king 
had had quite an interest in the case. So when the case is exposed as a hoax, um, the potential embarrassment for, for the king um, is, is, is clearly there. So do you think that's why, um, why there was such a strong reaction against Mary Toff? Because ultimately, no one was harmed here. No money changed hands. Nobody was hurt. But there was a, a massive appetite to see her punished. You know, a poor individual, and particularly a poor woman, you know, didn't didn't have in this society many resources at their disposal um, to um, engage in politics and in public debate. Um, And, uh, you know, this is one reading of this case is that this is actually um, a, a really eloquent political protest on the part of a poor woman. And I think there is evidence for that case. Um, But, you know, there's also something, you know, just much more prurient going on here. This is a case that allows for all kinds of innuendo, innuendo at the expense of Mary Toft herself, but also at the doctors. Um, You know, it's a potential, you know, it gives great comedic material um, to all of those early 18th century satirists and humorists. Um, whose who's living is made by, you know, making smutty jokes. Um, and, you know, the 18th century, early 18th century public lap those up. Um, so, you know, it's, it's potentially hilarious, um, but it also, as I say, allows th- that sort of misogynist um, strand to, to, to come out. Yeah, I think we often think of the Georgian era as very elegant and refined, but this suggests that there was a very bawdy, seedier undercurrent to it all. Yeah, and I think for me, those are those are almost two sides of the same coin, actually. You know, the, the, the people who are, um, you know, going to those new public spaces of refinement, who are, you know, dressing elegantly, um, who are engaging in, in polite conversation... They're the very same people who are curious about Mary Toft, who are exchanging um, jokes and stories about her. Um, We see this in in the newspapers. We see this in the very few number of letters that survive that that talk about her. We see this in the the published pamphlets. Pamphlets, um, you know, so... The, the public sphere, the 18th century public sphere is very diverse. Um, yes, there is, you know, polite gentility, um, but there's also bawdy smut and bawdy humour. Perhaps it's worth um, mentioning where all of this left Mary Toft. How did she come out the other side of the case? That's a really interesting question. It's very difficult to, to trace what happens to Mary Toft, Um after the, 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 the case has sort of fallen apart. So she's released from the House of Correction. Um, she will have been and is reported to have been very poorly and considerably weakened by the whole experience. Um, but she goes on to have another child um, within a year, remarkably. Um, we don't know if she had any more children, the historical record doesn't doesn't tell us. Um, and so she sort of falls back into a certain amount of obscurity. 
She appears again in the historical record just a couple more times. Um, She is accused of shoplifting um, around 15 years after the case. And then finally, um, the record of her burial, um, which one would expect to be a relatively innocuous um, uh, parish book entry, um, as they normally are, um, reminds us of, of the case. And so in the, in the parish register, she's recorded as having been buried and she's named as Mary Toff, the imposterous rabbit breeder. And I think that's a remarkable entry in the parish register, Um, you know, on a page where everybody else is is just referred to by their name, she's given this this title. And and so it's quite clear that in Godalming, um, 40 years after the case, there is a a very live memory um, of her participation in, in this hoax. So clearly in Godalming, this reputation will have followed her about. Quite what an impact that had on her life, it's just very difficult for us to say because we don't have any really detailed qualitative material from from her or from anyone around her once the hoax has has, um, concluded. So if we look at 18th century England through the lens of this case, what kind of society is revealed? I think the picture that I take away from this case of early 18th century British society is one of social inequity and social conflict. And that's partly spinning on social rank. So it's partly about the poor, the impoverished, the middling sort and the elite and the tensions between those groups But it's also about gender, and gender gives this case a really particular spin, I think, because you throw into that world of social inequity and social tension, you throw into that world um, another set of inequities and hierarchies, and those are um, ones about men and women. We see them played out um, between those elite men um, who represent the criminal justice system and Mary Toff, the poor woman. We see them played out between those um, uh, privileged doctors and Mary Toff, the poor woman. And so gender gives a really particular spin um, to those social tensions. So I think that's, that's probably, for me, at the heart of the case. It's those forces, those social relations that are driving the case. And it's, it's, it's those social relations that are so wonderfully exposed by this really extraordinary affair. That was Karen Harvey. Her book... The Imposterous Rabbit Breeder, Mary Toft in 18th Century England, is available now, published by Oxford University Press. You can also read a version of my interview with Karen in the February issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes features on the Spanish Armada, the liberation of Auschwitz and the Little Ice Age. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Monday, where Mary Beard will be discussing the nude in antiquity. Mm-hmm.